Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Providence Community Church. It's good to see you. If you're a father in the room, I want to say happy Father's Day to you. Um, my name is Eric Ripley. If you don't know me, uh, I serve as the Director of Assimilation and Discipleship here at Providence. And uh, Providence is a community of people that have been formed around one single and compelling vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. Uh, and to that end, we open our Bibles every single week because we believe that the scriptures uh, have everything we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. So um, we are currently in a sermon series called Love God, Love People, The Heart of Discipleship, uh, and in which we've been discussing the greatest commandment in scripture and how it shapes the life of Jesus' disciples. And so um, if you do have your Bibles today, um, our passage is going to be found in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one or two in the seats in front of you there in your row. Uh, you can grab one of those and you can turn there as well and follow along with us. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at all, you don't own one, that's our gift to you, you can keep it. Uh, but if you do, just return it after service. Um, so once again, Colossians 3, if you are able to this morning when you get there, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. Colossians 3, starting in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Happy Father's Day again. Hey, my name is Joseph. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, uh, I serve on staff here at Providence. I do a number of different things. Uh, one of them is I get the opportunity to teach pretty regularly. And so uh, today we're going to continue our series, as Eric said, called Love God, Love People. We're exploring the heart of discipleship, basically looking at what does it mean to be formed into lovers of God and others by the gospel through the Holy Spirit. We have said that this is the heart of what God desires for Christians is that we would love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is a lifelong journey by which we are shaped and formed through the Holy Spirit. We don't naturally um, love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we don't naturally love our neighbor as we do ourselves. And so uh, we've already covered that ground. If you're sitting there and you're like, no, I love God with all of my heart, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I love my neighbor just like I love myself, then guess what? You get to preach next week. Um, but no, we've already talked about all that. And we're just like, just being honest, it's like, no, that doesn't come naturally to us because of sin. We're shaped and bent inwardly towards ourselves. And so we struggle to love God that way. We struggle to love God with everything that we have and every ounce and every aspect of our life. And we struggle to love people like we ought to. And so we've said that this is God's desire, is that we would be shaped into lovers of God and others, and uh, that, that's the heart of discipleship. But as I say nearly every week, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, or you're not sure you're a Christian, our desire is that you would taste and see the glory and goodness of Jesus when we teach from the scriptures. So would you guys please pray with me to that end? Father, we come before your throne of grace like we do every week, God, and we come humbly, but God, we come with confidence and courage, knowing, God, that you have provided access to us by Jesus Christ to come before your throne, Lord God, and we can come and make our petitions known to you, God. And our petition this morning is that your son, Christ Jesus, would be glorified as your word is proclaimed, that the Holy Spirit would comfort and convict and guide our, guide our hearts, Lord God, direct our hearts towards you, Father, that your people would be encouraged, edified, and built up, 
and those that do not know you, God, that they might come to know you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Okay, so we started the series looking at the great commandment, which is to love God, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And we said that where we, we, are, we have <clears throat> excuse me, studied that God wants us to love him. And he not only wants us to love him, he wants us to love others. And knowing that this isn't something that comes easy to us, we're spending this summer talking about how we grow in our love for God and for people. But today, we're going to talk about, in particular, how we grow in our love for God and people by and through Sunday worship gatherings. In other words, what does or how does what we do in here on Sundays shape our love for God and for people? How does it direct our love towards God and how does it help us grow in our love for others? Now, my guess is because we're in the South and we're in the suburbs of Houston, Texas, that uh, many of us have um, at least some general awareness that what Christians do is Christians go to church on Sunday, right? Most people would agree with that. That's just what Christians do. Um, and, and, and that's really all across the spectrum. You can be a fully devoted, like really passionate, sincere follower of Christ, and you go to church on Sunday, and then you can be somewhere in the middle where you're just kind of not really sure about your, your faith in Christ, but uh, you, you still go to church every Sunday. And then there are people that go to church every Sunday just because their spouse makes them go, uh, or because it's kind of the culturally acceptable thing to do, and really their heart's not in it at all. And so you can be all across the spectrum, but my guess is that many of us, because you grew up in the South, you understand that Christians, we go to church on Sunday. Here's what I'm, what I'm, what I'm going to, to press us with this morning, though. Have you ever really thought deeply or wondered why Christians go to church every Sunday? And already I'm, I'm tempted to, and I'm not I'm tempted, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to go ahead and correct the vernacular that I've already been using, and, and that is this, that you can't go to church on Sunday. You know that, right? Because the Bible actually teaches us that Christians are the church, that we are the body of Christ, that we are, to use the, the biblical term, the Greek word ekklesia, we are the gathered people of God. We are the church. So when you come to church on Sunday, really what we should be saying is, I am coming to gather with the church on Sunday. And we are coming to gather for a specific purpose. And what is that purpose? We call them worship gatherings, right? So why do Christians gather on Sunday? Why do we go to church? Why do we attend church services? I'm using all of the popular language, right? Um, why do we go hear the preaching? Why do we go sing songs? Why do we partake in the sacrament of communion? If you're a Baptist, the ordinance of communion every single week. Why do we do that? Why, is, why are those things important? Have you ever thought deeply about that? Have you ever thought about the significance of what we're doing here on Sunday mornings? Well, if you've ever thought deeply about it, then uh, we're going to be on level playing field because that's what I'm going to talk about. If you've never thought deeply about it, that's what we're going to be talking about today, so you're, you're in a good spot. Um, the reason that this matters to me so much, and I say this pretty regularly whenever I get up to teach, is that I know all too well in a community like ours, in a context like ours, there are a lot of things that are assumed about Christianity and not a lot of things that are explicit. And so I want to help us get a little bit more explicit about why we do what we do on Sunday mornings. And hopefully, you'll leave out of here with a better understanding of why your being here today is important for your discipleship and your growth and your spiritual maturity. And 
for God shaping your heart to be more of a lover of God and more of a lover of people. So we've got three points. Number one, we're going to look at what are we doing? Like, what are we actually doing here? Number two, we're going to look at, sorry, why does it matter? Um, And number three, we're going to look at how does it affect our everyday lives? So number one, what are we doing? Number two, why does it matter? Number three, how does it affect our everyday lives? So point number one, we're going to go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and we're going to look at what are we doing. I'm going to give a little bit of context for Colossians. Paul, the apostle, was writing to the church at Colossae, and the church at Colossae was a church that struggled with being influenced by prominent heresies. I'm not going to go into what all of those heresies were, but they were pretty prominent. They were shaping the culture in that time. And like what often happens, um, culture started to influence the church a little bit more than the church was influencing the culture. Hello? Anyone out there? Right, this happens, that the culture influences the church a little bit more than the church influences the culture. And so this was happening. Some prominent heresies in that day were shaping the culture of the church. And those heresies were primarily centered on the practice and the priority of worship in the church. They were primarily centered on the practice and the priority of worship in church. If you want a little bit more context, you can go back and read Colossians 2. Or you can even read Colossians 1, the Christ hymn that, that Paul lays out. These heresies were basically contaminating the practice and the priority of worship in the local church. And so Paul writes to the Colossians, and he tries to correct the heresies that had started to influence them. And one of the ways that he does this most commentators agree that what he's talking about whenever he enters into his discourse in, in Colossians 3, what he's talking about is the communal aspect of Christian life together. So basically being a church, not just being Christians, but being a Christian and also being a part of a church, that the communal aspect of the Christian life is meant to shape our worship practices. Let me say that again. The communal aspect of Christian life is meant to shape our worship practices. So let me put it to you another way. You are not meant to be a Christian in an isolated vacuum. Okay? This is not, this is not the, the, the design or the plan or the intent of God is that you become a Christian. Like God saves you from your sin. God redeems you. God reconciles you unto himself. And then he pulls you out of the world and then just isolates you and sends you and maybe your family into some isolated existence whereby you're, you're, you're doomed to or destined to follow him all on your own out there in the everyday, um, just struggling to try and follow God. That is not how God does it. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. When you are saved and when you are baptized, you are baptized into what? The body of Christ. Whether you like it or don't, You were baptized into the body of Christ. Every Christian is meant to be brought into the body of Christ. Now, we do this in local expressions called local churches. And so Paul is making it abundantly clear to the Colossians that much of how they're going to grow as Christians is in the context of community with other Christians. You're going to grow more in relationship with other people than you are going to grow on your own. How do we know that to be true? It's easy to say that you love Christians when you don't have to spend time around other Christians, right? Hello? Church, can we be honest this morning? Let's be honest. If there's one place we should be able to be honest, it's church. I know that we think it's the opposite, but it's actually true. We should be honest in church, okay? So if there's one thing that makes it abundantly clear how difficult it is to love other people, it's living among other people, right? 
But here's, here's how Western culture has shaped us. Western culture has shaped us in that whenever you go to work, um, you're nine to five or whatever, if you do shift work or whatever it is, whenever you go to work, you're there essentially to earn a paycheck. It's a duty that you do. It's a necessary evil. I have to go to work so that way I can earn a paycheck. You're not going to work, though, my guess is just so that way you can be around other people, right? You're probably not going there just like, I can't wait to go to work and hang out with people. The paycheck's kind of inconsequential. I don't really care about the pay. I just like the people, right? That's not what happens whenever you go to work. Or you go to work for pay. People are kind of a necessary, a necessary reality depending upon what kind of work you do, all right? Now, also, whenever you get off of work and you drive home in your commute, you're in your car, by yourself, most of you. We're Houstonians, we don't like the carpools, we don't like the HOV lane, okay? Um, we like to drive in our own car and congest the highways and do all of that kind of stuff and listen to talk radio or whatever, but we're by ourselves. And then we get home and we come home to, if you're married, you come home to your nuclear family, right? You come home to your wife, you come home to your kids. If you're retired, you may just come home to your wife. If you're single, you might just come home to yourself, which is nice for a season, right? Um, or if you got a roommate or something like that, you come home. And then you are, for the most part though, either by yourself or you are around a group of people that you have chosen to invest your life and love in, right? Your wife or your children. That is the rhythm that we take every day. We wake up in the morning, we're by ourselves, we get in the car, we go by ourselves, we go to work, we're only there, we're around people, but we're only there because we have to be to make money, then we come home and we're around the people that we've chosen to be a part of. But whenever you become a Christian and God saves you and puts you into a local church, then you have to start being around other people, guess what? For the sake of being around other people. God actually calls you outside of yourself and calls you into community with other people because here's what happens whenever you're around other people. Not only are you aware of how sinful other people are, which starts to get on your nerves and drive you crazy, but you also become, immediate, unless you just have a really judgmental, critical spirit, you also become immediately aware of how sinful you are. You become immediately aware of how short-tempered you are, how selfish you are, how much you, you, your own preferences and desires shape your everyday decisions. You become aware of those things. And so what Paul is getting at in all of Colossians is he's trying to make it abundantly clear to the Colossian Christians that whenever you become a Christian, the way in which you are shaped and formed into lovers of God and lovers of people is not in isolation, but it's in community. And your communal life together with other Christians is that which is going to help you put to death your old practices, and then put on the new practices. Which is a portion of scripture that we didn't read for the sake of time, but it just, it, it, it precludes what we just read. And so Paul tells the Colossians, listen, I want you, if you've been raised with Christ, I want you to set your mind that are on things that are above. I want you to set your mind on heavenly things. I want you to put to death in you the things that are worldly, the things that are earthly. I want you to put to death all of the sinful practices that you once walked in. I want them to die. And then he says, and I also want you then to put on all of these good virtues. But how do we do that, Paul? How do we become Lovers of God and lovers of people. How do we grow in our love for God and our love for people in a community that is filled with other sinful people? Paul gives us a recipe. And in verse 16, that's where we find it. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
So how do we grow in our love for God and our love for people, Paul? How do we put to death the things that are earthly in us? And how do we put on then, as God's chosen one, all of these virtues, these godly virtues that just seem so foreign and so alien to us? Paul's recipe for that is he says, when you get together with one another, here's what you need to be doing. You need to, number one, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you've ever wondered what we do whenever we come here and whenever we gather on Sunday, one of the primary things that we are doing is we are trying to put the Word of God into you, right? Sundays in church are meant to be word-saturated, word-dense exercises in Christian practice, right? Now, what has happened in much of contemporary Christianity is we have essentially evacuated the centrality of the Word from worship and we have turned worship more so into like an entertainment endeavor, right? When you come to church on Sunday, uh, the music will sometimes be uh, sadly absent of the word. There won't be a whole lot of theological content in the songs. Then whenever the preacher gets up, sometimes if he even brings a Bible with him in the pulpit, he may reference it only once and then go on and give you a motivational speech that's kind of based off of some vague notion that's in the Word, but not actually from the Word itself, not preaching from the Word of God. Then whenever we move into the times of the sacraments, you know, the Lord's Supper or Communion, none of those things are really highlighted by, by their place in the Word or any of those things, the significance in the Word. And so basically we have, we have grown accustomed to, in our particular culture, showing up to church and it not being word-centered, but Paul actually says that, listen, one of the primary things that we need to be doing when we gather is the word of Christ needs to dwell in us. And he needs to dwell in us richly. So one of the things I want us to see is that our worship, whenever we gather, is to be word-saturated. It's to be word-dense. The word of God is what's going to shape our beliefs and our practices, which in turn is going to redirect our desires. Amen? So I said last week, the reason why it's important to keep singing, like the reason why it's important for repetition, the reason it's important to sing the same songs, the reason that it's important to do the same things every Sunday is because repetition shapes us, right? We used the analogy last week where Paul calls us to be trained in godliness, to be trained in the words of faith, right? So we said repetition is actually what shapes you. If you just go into the gym and you try and do a heavy lift and you only do it one time, not only are you going to hurt yourself, but your muscles aren't going to grow. Your muscles grow through repetition, through doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Your heart, which is also a muscle that God has created, is going to grow and it's going to be shaped by the Word of God the more and more you hear the Word of God, the more and more you sing the Word of God, the more and more you say the Word of God, the more and more you, you, you have it coming into your ears right? The more and more you participate in word-centered practices, the more the word is going to get into your heart and the more it's going to shape your heart. We cannot become gospel-shaped, spirit-formed people apart from the word of God. God's word is meant to dwell in us richly. It means he wants the word of God to live in our hearts. So that whenever you, listen, so that whenever you encounter something difficult in your work, or whenever you encounter something difficult in your marriage, or at your home, your reflex is not worldliness, your reflex is godliness. 
But that only happens whenever our lives are centered and shaped on the Word. When we put the Word in you over and over and over and over again, you have to understand when you come to this gathering on Sundays, our job is not to just encourage you. Our job is to try and put the Word of God inside your heart, to place it there, to lodge it there. So that way, whenever you encounter difficulty in the world, like I said, your reflex is godliness, not worldliness. Your reflex is one of the virtues that Paul lays out in the earlier part of Colossians chapter 3. It's not one of the reflexes that he lays out in an even earlier part, which is something like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, or any of those things. And so our gatherings are going to be word-saturated. They're going to be word-centered because we want to get the word of God into you. That is what Paul actually says that we should be doing, is we should be letting the word of God dwell in us richly. Is everyone with me still? Okay, he also commands us to, and I'm going to move through these kind of quick because I'm going to explain them a little bit more here in a bit, but he also commands us to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. To teach and to admonish one another in all wisdom. Now, this seems a little bit strange, right? Because we're thinking, wait, on Sundays, whenever we gather, we're not necessarily teaching and admonishing one another. Uh, we're being taught and we're being admonished from the, from the, from the pulpit. You know, from whoever's up there teaching uh, is, is the one that's doing the instruction and the admonition. But Paul says that there's an element in, of our communal life together in which we should be teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Now, I want to say that there are two ways in which this is fleshed out. Certainly, this is fleshed out in our everyday life in community with one another. At Providence, we have these things called home groups that function kind of as community groups, smaller pockets of organized community where we try and live the Christian life together with one another. Now, certainly, in your home groups, you should be growing in your ability to teach one another and admonish one another, right? So whenever he says teach, he's basically saying that you need to instruct, you need to be able to put the word of God into other people yourself, and then whenever you admonish people, you also need to be able to warn them whenever you see them walking in worldliness. So he says, I want you to grow in this practice of both teaching one another about godliness and warning one another about worldliness, all right? And that should shape the entire life of our church. A church should be a place where not just you're being taught on Sundays, but when you're around other Christians, you're also being taught, amen? All right, we've made that abundantly clear. In the culture of Providence Community Church, we don't want to be a Sunday-centered church, we want Sundays to be central to what we do, but we don't want it to be the only thing that we do. We want Sundays to be more so a catalyst that builds you up in a way that you can do this on your own throughout the week, that you can encourage one another, that you can teach one another, that you can admonish one another. But I also want us to note, though, that there is a way in which we can teach and admonish one another when we gather, and that it's an important communal component of what we do, that Sundays aren't meant to be a spectator event only. Hebrews 10 warns us that warns Christians that we should not neglect to gather together. Paul says if Paul was actually the writer of Hebrews, I apologize, I always do that because um, I think he was. But anyway, um, the writer of Hebrews 10 warns us that we should not neglect meeting together. That, he says that is the habit of some. Why should we not ne neglect meeting together? Because when we gather together, we are doing a couple of things. Number one, when you gather, you're not just showing up for you. Do you realize that whenever you gather on Sunday, you're showing up for other people as well? 
Have you ever sat in a, in a room and um, in a time that was maybe difficult and your faith, your, your faith was maybe weak or struggling or frail in that moment and you listened to the prayer of someone else and the prayer of someone else encouraged you? We had a prayer and worship gathering here on Wednesday night. I was deeply encouraged by the prayers of those that were up here on the stage. It was actually their faith, though, that was encouraging my faith. Have you ever been in those rooms? The faith and the prayers of someone else has actually encouraged you? Do you realize that whenever you show up on Sunday, you're not meant to just be the recipient of encouragement? You're actually meant to be a perpetuator of encouragement yourself? So whenever your brother and sister is sitting there in that seat next to you, I almost said pew, but whenever they're sitting there in that seat next to you, that nice cushy three-inch foam seat that you're sitting on there, um, whenever they're sitting there in that seat next to you and your faith is strong and you are sitting there and you are singing and you are praising God and you are praying out loud and you are reciting the scriptures and your faith and your joy in Christ is just emanating from you, that's meant to be an encouragement to the person that's next to you. And likewise, whenever you show up on a Sunday and you don't know why you're here and you're frustrated that you're here and you don't even really want to be here, you actually just like, man, I got to go because I know that if I don't, my home group leader is going to ask me about it and I'd rather just put up with the, with the task of going on Sunday than be hounded. So I'm going to go ahead and go. Whenever you show up, even with that attitude where you're not expecting anything but to just be here kind of absentmindedly for an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes, Your faith in that moment can be spurred on by the passionate pursuit of God by the other people in the room, can it not? If you're paying attention to what's going on, it can be. There is a way in which our faith and our our belief in God can actually spur on and encourage the faith of others. There's also a way in which whenever we show up on Sundays that our faith and our belief in God can serve as a warning and an admonition to others. Because when you come into this gathering, see, Paul's speaking into a context in which believers were truly believers, all right? And here's what I mean by that. There was no social benefit to being a Christian in this time. If you showed up to church on Sunday, you showed up knowing full well that it might cost you your life in doing so. So the men and women that we read about in Scripture are men and, women, men and women that were sincere and devout in their faith. And so whenever they showed up, there was this pursuit of God that my guess is was not lax. There was a pursuit of God that was happening there that was passionate, that was engaging, that there was a devotion there, there was sincerity there. There wasn't kind of this maybe lackadaisical, um, kind of haphazard approach to worship. And so there's sincerity that's happening there. And listen, if there's anything that should disturb your nominal faith it is the passionate faith of others when you call yourself a christian and you get around other people that are christian and you see how they're pursuing god and you see that they're actually building their life on the gospel that they're making decisions based on what the bible says they're doing hard things for the glory of god and you yourselves are not that is meant to serve as a warning to you Let me put it this way. When you show up on Sunday and you see your brothers and sisters fully participating, hands lifted, singing, not saying you have to lift your hands, don't write me an email, okay? Um, 
hands lifted, singing, engaged, partaking, taking notes, really sitting on the front of your seat, listening, and then you're sitting there with your arms kind of folded back, haven't said a word, haven't done anything. That should serve as a bit of a warning to you that maybe there's something going on in your heart that's not good, or maybe there's not something going on in your heart that should be going on. You should look at your other brothers and sisters and say, why are they so engaged and I'm not? That should serve as a warning to you. Why are, why, is there like varsity level Christians and JV level Christians and freshman level Christians? Or like, what, what, what's going on here? Am I just JV and that guy's varsity over there? No. No. There's a warning component that happens whenever we gather on Sundays. Keep going. He also commands us to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. I gotta look at my time because I've got a few minutes on this point. Paul actually tells us to sing. Now, he doesn't tell us to show up in a room where there are other people singing, he actually tells us to sing. Christians are to be singing people. You'd be hard pressed to read the Bible from cover to cover and not walk away with this impression that God's people are called to be singing people. You wanna know why? Because right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, there is a book called the Psalms, and that has been known as the songbook of God's people since the Old Testament. What we read as scripture was once songs that were sung in the life of God's people. God's people have always been a singing people. If you go back and you read the story of the Exodus, they come out on the other side of the Exodus, and what does God command them to do? To sing a song. He tells Moses to teach them a song, and then he teaches them a song, and they sing this song. And why are they supposed to sing this song? They're supposed to sing this song to make their hearts remember the Exodus. Now why? why? Why is singing such an important thing? Maybe God, the creator of all things, maybe God, the greatest artist in the universe, understands something a little bit more about the art of singing than we do, and that is that if you really want to teach someone to remember something, take poetry, take words, and put it to song form. I guarantee you, you probably did not, I can't guarantee, some of you are really, you've got like a memory like my nine-year-old, you probably don't remember the sermon that I preached three months ago. But I guarantee you, if you've been coming to this church and Brendan stood up here right now and sang In Christ Alone, we would all join in. Why? Songs go hand in hand with our memory bank for some reason. Songs actually put the word of Christ in us, and it's a way in which the word of Christ can dwell in us richly, and for us to actually be singing gospel-centered biblical truths throughout the week, songs are meant to shape the life of the church. So Paul knows this, and he calls them, he says, I want you to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, and I want you to do this with thankfulness in your heart, because singing is a vital part of what we do. It's a very vital part of what we do. Singing is prayer put to melody. The uh, Augustine, the church, early church father, was cited, nobody really knows if he actually said it or not, but he was cited saying that singing is praying twice. When we sing, it's basically like praying, but it's just praying to songs. 
singing is prayer twice. Singing has always shaped the life of God's people. And listen, we are to sing with one another. As I said earlier, the passionate pursuit of God in this room, your singing is meant to spur on and encourage other people. It's also meant to serve as an admonition and warning for other people. That we are meant to actually sing. Now, I'm going to press here a little bit. And I'm, I'm going to try not to get too deep into this. One of the uh, heresies that Paul was combating was an early form of Gnosticism. All right, Greek Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was essentially this. I'm going to explain it to you in a nutshell. The Gnostics believed that body and spirit were distinct. The Gnostics believed that the body was filthy and inconsequential. The body was essentially, the flesh was just a carcass that was containing the real substance of who we are, which was our spirit. And that one day, because we were going to die and our body was going to decay, what really mattered was our spirit and our spirit only. So the Gnostics saw us as spiritual beings primarily with a body that's just kind of like, we're just stuck in this thing. And that was a heresy because it caused them to elevate spirit above body and it caused them to see the flesh as of inconsequential, which is what allowed Christians, check this out, this is what allowed Christians to commit all kinds of sins with their body because they thought as long as my body's committing the sin and my spirit isn't, it doesn't really count. So they had divorced body and spirit to such a degree that Christians were thinking that they could get away with doing all the things that the world was doing because they were saying, my spirit's not in it, only my body is in it. So Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that you are a whole being. God has created you. That's why we're called to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is our veryness, our body. God wants us to love us. God wants us to love him with everything that we have, making it abundantly clear that when you love God, listen to me, Christian, you love him not only with your mind, you love him not only with your soul, you love him not only with your heart, your heart but you love him with your strength as well, which includes your body. One of the ways in which you love God with your body when you show up to church on Sunday is to use your body to worship God. And one of the ways in which you can actually use your physical body to worship God is to lift your tongue and to let sound come out of your mouth that is praising and extolling the excellencies of Christ. You know that you are actually commanded to sing over and over and over in the Bible. You know that the Psalms are filled with commands like this, rejoice. That's a command in the Bible, rejoice. Sing with, with gladness in your hearts, shout for joy. You know that that's a command in the Bible? We get uneasy whenever they're shouting in church. But shouting, shout for joy, what does shout for joy look like? What is singing, what is rejoicing, what do all of these things look like in the life of the church? They're meant to be a part of what we do because it's a way in which we are actually, listen to me, it's a way in which you are actually training your body to love God when your body doesn't want to. And in training your body to love God, you're also shaping your heart to love God. So listen to me, I'll, I'll move on from here. It's important to sing even when you don't want to sing because you are telling your heart what to do, not the other way around. You're actually commanding your heart to delight in God and to sing about God, to delight in God so much that you'd be willing to sing about God, even when you don't feel like it. It's important that you sing. Now all of you are gonna be like, I'm feeling really insecure right now. Joe's gonna be looking to see if I'm singing, and if I don't sing, then I'm gonna feel judged harshly. Um, I won't judge you. I will admonish you, though. 
Some of you got it, some of you didn't. It's okay. All right, he commands us to sing. Last, and I, I'm not going to take much time on this because we're going to be talking about it for the next couple weeks. He, he commands us to do everything we do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So basically, what, what that means is what happens in here is meant to translate into everything that we do. Now, quickly, why does this matter? Second point, why does this matter? This matters because Christians have had and still continue to have an anemic view of what we're doing on Sunday. If Christians get what we're doing on Sunday wrong, then the world won't understand. If Christians don't understand, we certainly can't expect the world to understand what we're doing in here. But according to Paul written elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there should be an element of what we're doing here on Sundays that makes sense to non-Christians. Whenever people that show, show up that don't believe in Jesus or maybe they have nominal faith in Christ or weak faith in Christ, when they show up, what we do in here should translate to them in a way that it makes sense to them. Now, one of the ways in which what we do in here can actually make sense to non-Christians is if we actually participate in what we're doing in here, right? If we're actually listening and if we're actually singing and we're actually partaking and we're actually showing up not just with our body to sit in the, to sit in the seat, but we show up with our body and we show up with our mind and we're, do you, get, do you see what I'm getting at? Did you know that there's a way to show up to church and not actually show up to church? Have you ever done that? Sadly, I have to confess, I do it all the time. I walk in, and I'm pastor, you know, so I'm thinking about all the logistical things, and sometimes I'll even look at, like, are these lights too dim right now? You know, like, I walk in, and, and I just start thinking about all this, and before I know it, the song's actually happening, or maybe whoever's up here teaching that's not me is up here teaching, you know, it could be Corey, it could be Cora, it could be Eric, it could be someone up here teaching, and then before you know it, like, I'm here, and I'm actually present, but I'm not present. You know how that can happen, right? Just like it happens at home. Like my wife warns me all the time. She's like, hey, when you're here, I need you to be here, which basically means I need you to actually engage with me and the kids. Don't be on your phone. Don't, you know, don't space out. Like when you're here, be here. Do you know that there's a way to show up on Sunday and to be here but not be here? Do you know that there's a way to train yourself to be here though? When the songs are being played, actually think about the words. Don't just sit there and be like, like, you know, and just like, does Brendan match today? You know, like, like, don't be thinking, does Joe match? Did he really wear white shoes on a Sunday? Anyway, um, don't be thinking about those things. Think about the words. When the word is proclaimed, bring a Bible, open your Bible, or if you must, flip open the app on your phone and read along and take notes. Train yourself to be here. When you come and partake in the sacrament of communion, don't just come and dip some bread into some juice and get a soggy piece of bread and then walk out of the room or, or walk out and just be like, okay, that was, that was great. The juice was a little bit bitter today. Um, think, this is the broken bread that represents the, shed, or the, the, the body of Christ that was given for me. Think, this is, this is the cup that's meant to represent the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of my sin. And when you take it, partake, partake it with both sobriety and joy. When you show up, show up. One of the ways in which we're going to confuse the world is if Christians show up to church and they don't actually show up to worship with the church. So why does it matter? It matters also because Sundays were given to help shape our hearts, not just give us an emotional pick-me-up. God is seeking to rework, reclaim, redeem, and ultimately replace our desires, and he does that whenever we gather on Sunday through the word being proclaimed. What we do here matters, and it matters greatly 
because God has always used the Lord's day and Sabbath practice and worship, the gathered worship of his people to shape the collective life of his people. And so to be a Christian but to not show up on Sunday regularly and rhythmically and to train yourself to do so, listen to me, you're accepting a more anemic, less robust faith in God, I can assure you that, than what God would have you enjoy. Sundays are meant to bolster and encourage and shape your faith, shape your heart, direct your heart. Last point, how does it affect our everyday lives? Well, first and foremost, I want to make this, make this abundantly clear. What happens on Sunday is meant to shape our everyday lives. It is meant to shape our everyday lives. The word of Christ being put in your hearts and dwelling in you richly is meant to shape your everyday lives, right? Singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts is meant to shape your everyday lives. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom is meant to shape your everyday lives. So I want to make it abundantly clear. What happens on Sunday isn't supposed to just sustain you until the next Sunday. What happens on Sunday is actually supposed to be shaping your Monday and your Tuesday and your Wednesday and your Thursday and your Friday and your Saturday. And then you come back on Sunday and then it shapes your Monday and your Tuesday in your Wednesday, in your Thursday. You see what I'm saying? That's why it's important for us to adopt this principle that God is, God is, he's after repetition. Repetition does a good thing in our life and our hearts. Repetition shapes us. It puts the gospel of Jesus into our hearts and minds and that is meant to sustain us on a daily basis. And why are we ordering our gatherings after the gospel? Why do we make it a point to proclaim the gospel whenever we do the sacrament of communion? Why do we do that? It's because we want people to be shaped by these things, not just today. We don't want you to just show up and get your emotional Jesus high, your Jesus fix, and then have to come back the next week to the next concert or whatever it is, or the next motivational speech. We want the word of Christ to dwell in you richly so that way it can shape your everyday life. And we do these practices, these things over and over and over again because we believe that they matter and we believe that they will shape us. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight and we ask God that you would use this time that we have together with one another to shape our hearts and our desires, God, to shape our love for you and our love for people. And we ask God that you would use it to make the gospel of Jesus more beautiful to us, to make the gospel of Jesus more real to us, God, where our hearts are prone to struggle with unbelief. May you use these times to recall the, the truth of the gospel, the significance of the gospel in our lives, and use this time, God, ultimately to direct our hearts towards you and to make us, God, more fully devoted worshipers and disciples of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. And one of the primary ways that the church has been regularly reminded of and nourished in the gospel is through the sacrament of communion. And the Lord's Supper is really just a tangible reminder of God's love, mercy, and grace towards us. And so every week, whenever we partake in the sacrament of communion, we are both remembering the gospel, the truth that God has given himself to us for the forgiveness of our sins, and we are celebrating the gospel, and we are proclaiming the gospel every time that we gather. And at Providence, we, last week we began the weekly practice of observing the sacrament of communion, and we're going to continue that this week, but we're also going to do something a little bit different today. And that's this, we're, we're launching a prayer ministry um, that's kind of been long overdue in our church. And so here's how this will go, is if you're a Christian and you come down and you receive communion here in a minute, if you really just want someone to pray with you or to pray over you in this time, 
then we're going to have men and women stationed on the right and the left of the stage here, your, your right and left of the stage here. And after you receive communion, if you want to partake and then just go over there and receive prayer, we have men and women that are actually trained in prayer that are going to pray for you. And so we would encourage you to do that. Also, um, if you're not a Christian, I want to make it abundantly clear, we would ask that you would, you would not partake in communion, not because we don't want you to, but because this is something that's really reserved for believers. This is a sign of belief in Jesus. And so if you've yet to put your faith in Christ, coming and doing this would just be an empty practice for you. We would rather you say, first, I believe in Jesus, and then come and receive this. But so if you're here, and you know that there's something that was said or something that was spoken and you're just not currently in relationship with God or you feel far from God, then we also want to invite you that you can utilize uh, these men and women that would pray for you as well. You can come and they will pray for you um, and they'll help you in a, in a prayer belief. If you'd rather, though, just sit in your seat as a non-Christian in this time and, and use this time to reflect, we'll put a prayer of belief up on the screen that you can reflect on. If you pray that, if you think through that or whatever, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but nonetheless, we want you to know that you're loved here, you're welcomed here. Um, this is a time, though, for Christians to come and to gather, so uh, to receive communion. So if you guys could please stand at this time. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and he held it up to his disciples, and he told his disciples, this is my body that has been given for you. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that in the same way he took the cup and he held the cup up to them and he said, this is the cup that represents the blood of the new covenant, this my blood that has been shed for you. He tells his disciples, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And when you do this, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that's what we're doing here every week. So Christians, please come forward and receive communion. If you'd like prayer, you can go and receive prayer too. Thank you so much.